Today, we're in the fourth week of our series, You Are Not Your Own, um, second to last uh, sermon in the series. Next week, Austin will wrap this series up. And then just to give you a heads up where we're going into the fall, we'll be walking through the New Testament book, New Testament letter of First Peter together as, as a church. And so looking forward to that in a few weeks. Um, in this series, we've been talking about authority. We've been talking about, you know, who gets to tell us how to live our lives, um, Austin mentioned this as we started the series out, like we are a people by and large that have a, a sort of strange, peculiar relationship with authority. Specifically, we, we don't like it, right? Like we, we don't like authority. We want to be our own authority. We want to tell ourselves how to live life, how to do life. Uh, we don't want anyone to be the boss of us. Um, that is sort of the, the narrative that culture impresses upon us from a very early age, um, that, that we are our own boss. And so we've just been asking the question, like, who gets to tell us how to live life? Who gets to be the one to tell us what, what life is all about? And what we've said, listen, is for those that are in Christ, for those that have placed their faith in Christ, what you've said is that you are willing to submit your life, surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus. So salvation for the Christian should be more than about uh, you know, the, the fire insurance, right? It's more than about, I don't, I don't go to hell when I die. It's more than just, uh, you know, one day I, when life is over, then I get to, I get to, to not go to hell and I, instead I get to go to heaven. Um, it's, it's more than that. It's not just making Jesus your savior, but it's, it's making Jesus your Lord. You've said, I'm submitting my life to, to his way. And so this series really is, is about that. We live in a, in a day and an age where our culture certainly encourages us to live in a particular way. Um, there's a lot of different sort of things that our culture screams at us. Uh, some of these I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, culture says, you know, live however you want. It's, it's your life. No one should tell you how to live. It's your life. You do what you want to do. Other times we hear culture say stuff like, be true to yourself. You ever hear that one? Just be true to yourself. You be you. Culture says things like, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Follow your desires, right? You hear that one? Just Follow your heart, follow your desires. Culture says things like, um, seek popularity and power, climb the ladder of success, be all you can be. Culture says things like, you strive to be unique, be an individual. Things like uniqueness and individuality are high values, goals of this particular culture. And my only question when it comes to some of these narratives of our culture is, um, how is that working out for us, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. How's, how's that going? And I think by, you know, a lot of different statistical measures, you'd have to say that it's not going, it's not going great. Um, just a few things that are pretty quick and easy reads, easy to find. Surveys um, reveal that we as a society are overall, this is painting with some broad strokes, but overall, we are the most stressed, anxious, and depressed people that have ever lived in the history of the world. That's saying something, right? Despite all the breakthroughs and all the technology and all the medicine and all the, you know, all the stuff we have, people reveal that they are more stressed out, more anxious, and more depressed than previous generations. In addition, um, despite being more connected through social media and technology, um, most surveys reveal that people are also more lonely People identify as more lonely today 
than they have been in previous generations. So think about that. We're more connected through social media. We have a thousand Facebook friends, but no real ones. You know what I mean? Like we just, we have all these followers and we, we, we follow everybody else, but we don't really know. We don't, we're not really known. We don't have a group of, of community where we do life together. And so by and large, people are unbelievably lonely while being more connected. There's also more mental illness now than there ever has been before. Um, because there is more diagnosed mental illness, we're also the most medicated people uh, more than ever before. There is more prescription drugs that are prescribed now than, than at any time in the history of the world. Basically, study after study, survey after survey reveals that, that by and large, again, painting with some broad strokes here, people revealed uh, that their mental, physical, social, and spiritual health are at an all-time low. And so, again, I go back to the question, if following culture and doing it our way and being our own boss and looking within ourselves and being true to ourselves, and if all of that is the way we're supposed to live, how's it, how's it going? Proverbs 14, verse 12, I think is a really great place to start. Proverbs 14, verse 12 is a very short verse, but I would encourage you to go back to it often, remember it often. Here's what it says very simply. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Some versions say it this way, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end, it ends in the path of destruction. There is a way that seems right, culture, it, it sounds good, it sounds like, yeah, live for yourself, look within yourself, be true to yourself, it sounds like the way we should do things, but in the end, it just isn't going well, the end is not good. We are created in God's image. We are created in his image. He wired us. He designed us to live life a certain way. God, as the author of life, the one that breathed life into us, he knows how you and I are to live life. There's a way that, that he knows we should live life to receive maximum joy in this life. But far too often, we, we decide we're going, to follow, we're going to follow our way. We're going to be true to ourselves. We're going to be our own boss. What I want to do this morning in just the brief time that we have together is I want to kind of walk through some of this cultural narrative. And, and what I want to show you is that according to Scripture, according to what, what God says, what Jesus says, um, it, it, he actually tells us that we're to live pretty counter-cultural way, uh, counter-cultural counter lives. The narrative of this world a lot of times is literally antithetical to what the way God has laid out for us to live. And then we have a choice to make which, which road we're going to choose, Right? So we'll start with this one. In a culture that says, live however you want, God actually says, here's some rules to live by, okay? From the very beginning in the Bible, God is the rule giver. Now, I know a lot of times we think rules are there to limit our fun, right? Rules are there to constrict us. I don't want to live with rules. Rules are the worst. Laws are the worst. I want to be free, and we think we want total and complete freedom, and so we have this idea that rules are bad, freedom is good, and that all rules are designed to basically limit my fun and limit me from being me, right? This is the way children believe, right? If you have kids, this is, this is what they think, right? But I'm going to guess, let me just throw a wild guess out there. If you're a parent, I'm going to guess you have some rules for your kids, right? If you don't have any rules for your kids, you're a bad parent, okay? I'll just tell you that. If you have no rules for your kids, you're a bad parent, because if you love your children, guess what? You're going to have some rules for them, right? There are some rules that you give your kids. And, and, and let me guess, as a parent, your goal in giving those rules is not, I hope to limit their fun. 
I want them to have no fun, right? Like, that's not, no, the, the purpose for rules is for their good. It's for their joy, right? So if you have little kids, I'm going to guess you say stuff like I told my little kids when they were, when they were little boys, hey, um, we're not going to go play in traffic. If you do, that's going to go very badly for you, right? You cannot go play. That's a rule. That's a, that's a law. You cannot do that. Oh, it's just you're limiting my fun. I want to have, God, no, it's so you don't die, right? That's, that's the rule. The rule's there so you don't die. It's because I love you that I give you the rule. If you have teenagers, I'm going to guess for those of you that have teenagers, uh, like I do, you have, a, uh, you have a curfew, right? I mean, uh, I hope you don't just go like, stay out as late as you want, do whatever you want. We don't even care. Just be quiet when you come in. Like, hopefully you have some sort of curfew. I don't know what that is for you. We have a curfew in our house. And let me guess, your teenagers sometimes with the curfew are like, oh, curfew, I have to be in at a certain time. And they're all, no, it's, it's for your good. You think it's because I'm trying to limit your fun, but it's for your good. It's actually because I love you that I give you a curfew. Listen, God is revealed in scripture as a good father. He's revealed in scripture as a good father. And we've got to get to places in our, in our lives where we understand that God's rules are not given to us to limit our fun and limit our joy. They're actually given to us for just the opposite so that, so that we can live life with joy if we would just follow those rules. And some people want to get real theological and go, well, rules came along after the fall when Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter three and sin enters the world, well, then God gave all the rules, all the laws, all the commandments. Then we have to have rules. But originally, we didn't need a bunch of rules, which is actually, again, biblically, not completely accurate, right? Genesis chapter two, I would remind you, we'll, we'll jump there. Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 17. This is before Genesis three. This is before the fall, before sin enters the equation. God has created man. And here's what, in, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded, now, I don't know about you, that, that sounds like a rule's about to show up, right? That sounds like a law is coming. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you must surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So before sin enters the equation, God is a good father who blesses his children, blesses them with everything, but gives them a rule, gives them a, a rule to live by. Again, not to limit their fun, which if you remember, when Satan comes along to tempt Eve, that's what he tries to play that card. He tries to play the God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be more like God knowing everything. He tries to try to play it off as, like a, as a good thing, like God's limiting your fun, but God gives them this rule because he says, if you eat of it, you will surely die. He's like, I'm giving you this rule because I love you and I care about you and I want good for you, not to limit your fun and limit your joy. God is the rule giver. As we walk through then, when sin enters the equation, Genesis 3, you get into the scriptures, you see God begin to give other rules. Again, they're for our good. Just read the 10 commandments. It's like, thou shalt not murder. That's a pretty good rule, right? Like, uh, thou shalt not, you know, covet all your neighbor's stuff. Uh, don't commit adultery, like sleep with your own spouse. Don't steal, don't lie. Like those are good rules. If we didn't have those rules, we would live in absolute chaos. We would live in absolute chaos. And so in a world that says, you just do whatever you want, you live your life, you live however you want, God from the very beginning is the rule giver, the good father that establishes some rules and boundaries that are for our good and for 
our joy. Number two, in a world or in a culture that says, be true to yourself, Jesus comes along and actually says, deny yourself. Our culture says, be true to yourself, look within. Jesus comes along and says something that is crazy countercultural when he actually says the opposite of that, and he says that we should deny ourselves. I won't camp out too much on this point. This is literally Austin's sermon from last week. Like if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go listen to it. His whole sermon was just about this, the fact that by, as a society, we sort of push people and, and, and gear everything towards look within, consider your, how you're feeling, how are you feeling about things. It's all about looking within when Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself. I'll read the text for you again over in Matthew chapter 16. Austin read this one last week, but really quick. Matthew 16, beginning in verse uh, 24, 24 and 25. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, a a completely countercultural way of doing life. To stop looking in yourself all the time. Listen, if, if you look hard enough, this side of heaven because of sin We can all look within ourselves and there's always gonna be a problem there. There's always a reason to be depressed. There's always a reason that things aren't going going great. One day when we get to heaven, praise Jesus, that won't be the thing. We will be made whole, we will be made complete. But but this side of heaven, like we can always find a problem with us, always. And and we we can dwell on that or we can maybe get our eyes off of us a little bit and begin to to look and see the people God places around us. Deny yourself. Again, a completely counter-cultural way to live but the opposite of what society and culture sort of push, push us to do. Number three, in a culture that says, follow your desires, just follow your heart, follow your desires. Well, the Holy Spirit actually says that we should practice self-control. The Holy Spirit says we should practice self-control. I would say that if we were really supposed to live and like follow our own desires, follow our own heart, follow our own, our own wants, then we would have no need for the Holy Spirit to give us self-control. Like the very fact that scripture tells us we need self-control shows us that, listen, sometimes our desires and our wants, the the natural end of those things is not always good and healthy. We need the Holy Spirit to give us self-control. In Galatians chapter five, um, Paul writes about the work of the Holy Spirit, that when you place your life in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. The Holy Spirit leads you and guides you um, in your life. The Holy Spirit helps you to pursue righteousness. Um, as you live life by the Spirit, there are things then that, are, that, are, um, that should be displayed in your life. If you're living life by the Spirit, there are certain things that you should be walking in and practicing. Galatians 5 points this out. Beginning in verse 22, he writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's the last one? Self-control, right? Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So God gives us the Holy Spirit in part to help us practice self-control. If we were truly supposed to live life and just follow all of our own desires to their natural end, we wouldn't need self-control. We wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. But that's not what scripture teaches. Now, I would point it, uh, one of the things in the church that we have historically not been great at is 
Um, Instead of focusing on our need for self-control to live life by the Spirit, we've often pointed to the thing, the desire itself that is bad, that that the desire itself is evil, wicked, and bad. But actually, um, I would say it this way. A lot of the desires that we have are actually good, God-given desires. It's just that we need to learn to practice self-control in light of that desire. So I could do this with a number of different things. Uh, Food is a great example, right? Um, Food is good. Anybody, amen? Like I love, give me medium rare steak. Oh, so good, right? Food is good. It's a good gift from God. But if you don't practice some self-control, it can lead to sin, right? It can lead to gluttony and lack of health. I mean, food can be a problem if we don't practice some self-control. But food itself is not bad, right? Um, You could do this with, I know a real hot button issue among a lot of Christians is alcohol, right? Alcohol. Some people want to say alcohol is always bad. And I always want to go, well, it can be. But in the Bible, it wasn't always bad. I mean, Jesus's first miracle was turning water into wine, not grape juice. He turned water into wine and apparently it was really good wine right? It was better than the stuff they had before. Paul writes to Timothy later in the epistles and tells him, hey, um, drink a little bit of wine. Like alcohol itself is not always the problem. The problem is when we don't practice self-control with alcohol, right? When we don't practice self-control with it, it becomes sinful. It becomes drunkenness. So it's not the thing that is the demon. It's not demonizing the thing. It's our lack of self-control with it. And to be clear, I understand some people can't practice self-control with it, and therefore should not drink, right? If you can't practice self-control with a particular thing, then then that's probably not something you should partake of. You should have a conviction not to ever drink. But what we often jump to is go, the thing is bad when it's not the thing that's bad. It's our lack of self-control with the thing. You could do the same thing with sex, right? I mean, sex is not evil, wicked, and bad in and of itself. Like I've said this before, sex is not this thing that like Satan threw in there when God wasn't looking, right? Like God turns around and he's like, oh my, what are they doing? Like I had no idea that was even an option. Like, listen, God created sex. It's a good gift from God to be practiced in certain contexts, self-controlled in certain contexts, right? And so the problem is not the thing. The problem is our lack of self-control. When we don't practice sex in the context for which God created it to be practiced in, it can be unbelievably harmful and hurtful. And we're seeing it all over our society right now but it's not the thing that's bad. You could do the same thing with work. I mean, work is a good thing. I know some people think, again, at the fall, when sin enters the world, all of a sudden work is something we have to do. Like work is this product of the fall. I just read Genesis chapter two, and it said God put Adam and Eve in the garden, what? To work it and and tend it. So God gave them work to do. Like work is a good thing. Doing work with your hand, like, Work is a, is a gift. Meaningful work to do is a gift, but here's the thing. You can, if you don't practice self-control with your work, you can, you can be a workaholic. You can neglect other things in your life that are really, really important, like your family, like your faith. Work is a good gift, but you can, you can not practice self-control and it can become harmful. You can swing hard the other way. Like leisure and rest is a good gift from God. God literally created a day of the week where he said, hey, stop working and take a break, take a nap. Like naps are a good gift from God. Amen, anybody? Amen. Like I love me a good nap. Like naps are good and they're holy and God encourages leisure. Take your days off, take your vacation time. You don't have to feel guilty about that. That's that's God given. But if you don't practice some self-control with your leisure, it becomes what? Laziness. And laziness is a sin. 
We could do this all day. There's all kinds of things out there that God, God gives. They're, they're good things. The desires for those things are good. Our problem is when we don't practice self-control, those things that God gave to be good can become sinful, can become very harmful for us, right? So in a world that says, you follow your desires, God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can enjoy God's good gifts while practicing some self-control. Number four, in a culture that says, seek popularity and power, those are the goals, man. Popularity and power, you, you climb the ladder, you be all you can be, you be the boss. Scripture actually says that we should humbly serve other people. There's a lot of places I could go to in Scripture to kind of drive this point home. One of my favorite stories is actually in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 20, um, Jesus' disciples are um, sitting around kind of arguing uh, about who's the greatest, which is just comical in and of itself, that his disciples are like literally arguing about who's greater. Um, in fact, it gets so bad, a couple of the disciples' mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, can you grant that my two sons can sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom? What she's asking is, hey, can my boys be the most powerful? Can my boys be like over everybody else? And Jesus basically goes, yeah, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. Like, if, if, you want those, if they want those positions, they're going to have to suffer a lot. And she's like, okay. <laughs> she, she doesn't really understand what she's asking, right? So Jesus uses this moment. The, disciples are, the other disciples are actually, when they find out about it, it says that they're indignant. They're mad. Like, you know, seriously, you had your mom come, like, fight your battle for you, dude. Not cool, right? So the disciples are mad, and they're arguing amongst themselves, and Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, but he called them, his disciples, to him. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they, they lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What he's saying is this, there's a way that it works in the world where you try to climb the ladder, you try to be the boss so that everybody can serve you. The weak serve the strong. You get to a position of, of popularity and strength and power so that you can dictate to everybody else. That's the way the world works. That's how you become great in the world. But in verse 29, he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes along and says, you guys are arguing about who's greater and who's more powerful and who gets to sit here in the positions of prominence. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You need to humbly serve other people. You need to be willing to be the least of these. And then Jesus, who said this, practices this. He demonstrates this for his disciples. Can I remind you that Jesus is God in the flesh? Jesus is God in the flesh, okay? All power, all authority given to Christ, and yet Jesus, at one point, he takes a basin of water and a towel, and he kneels down, and he washes the dirty, nasty, stinky feet of his very own disciples, the most powerful person that's ever lived in the history of the world, humbly served. And so in a world that says, you know, you seek popularity, you seek power, you climb that ladder, you be all you can be, the scriptures actually teach a message that's completely antithetical to that. You want to be great? You learn to serve the people God places around you. And then finally, number five, in a culture that says, you strive to be unique, 
uniqueness and individuality. Those are the goals. Those are the chief goals. You strive to be unique. Well, the church, the historic message of the church from the very beginning has been no, strive to be like Jesus. You strive to be like Jesus. Uniqueness and individuality are not and have never been the goals of the Christian life. Uniqueness and individuality are not and have never been the goals of the Christian life. Christ-likeness is the goal of the Christian life. And there's, again, a number of places I could go to uh, to point to this. I'll go to a pretty familiar one in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the church. He's literally telling them to imitate Christ, to be like Christ. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Other versions say, have this mind in yourselves, which is, uh, which is uh, Christ, which Christ also had, okay? So he's basically saying, pattern yourself after Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot of places in Scripture that say this same idea. That, that again, the goal for us as Christians is not uniqueness, it's not individuality, it's not separate yourself so you can be, the glory can go to you for being so unique and so wonderful. No, the goal of the Christian life is that we pattern our lives after someone. It's that we imitate someone, and that person, of course, is Christ. The goal is that we imitate Jesus. So over and over and over again, our culture sort of pushes a particular narrative. The narrative of the culture is, You are supreme. You are your own boss. No one can tell you how to do life. You live life the way you want to live it. You be true to yourself. You follow your own passions and desires. You follow your own heart, right? You climb the ladder of success. It's all about you. Look within yourself. But over and over and over again, the message of Scripture, the message of God, is that we live completely countercultural lives. Completely countercultural lives. Listen, I'll end with this. This is part of what we're going to address in our next series in 1 Peter, so I don't want to get too far ahead, but I know there's a lot made right now of the culture wars and how you know, Christians are trying to stand up for certain things and fight the good fight. And, and a lot of times, you know, what that ends up looking like is a lot of shouting and yelling and picketing and anger and political unrest and um, you know, Christians over here and the world over here, and it's like... <sighs> and I just always kind of... I read the scriptures and I find that like... That doesn't seem to be the way Jesus wants us to address the issue. Like, it seems to be that Jesus is saying, look, you show the world a more beautiful way to live by the way you live your life. Like, the world's following certain cultural trends and and that Christians, we're to live counter-cultural lives and in so doing, we just live with more joy and, and peace we show the world that there's a better way to live than following your own, being your own boss and, and, and looking within yourself. We show the world that the way of Christ is better and more beautiful. That's the goal, right? 
Like, I, I've never seen, like, sides picketing and arguing and bullhorn and yelling and trying to shout over each other. I've never once in any argument, I don't care if it's, like, abortion or, or um, uh, you know, the arguments about, like, the, the prayer in schools or the Ten Commandments posted in places, like, all these kind of cultural things. I've never once see, seen two sides trying to outshout one another and someone there going, you know what? You know what? I think they're right. I'm just going to go over to this side now. I think, like, that doesn't, it never happens, right? It never works that way. You're never going to like outshout somebody into joining your side. But what may convince someone is by you living a countercultural life with a lot of peace and a lot of joy, the way God tells us to live. That's what may change someone's heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word that just, God, quite honestly, just tells us how we should live. God, we're thankful today that you are a good father and that you love your children. And because you love us, God, you give us some rules. You give us some boundaries. You give us some guidelines. We're not left to try to just figure this thing out all by ourselves. As a good father, God, you instruct us in the way that we should live. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just stop seeing you as some kind of mean guy in the sky that's trying to limit our fun but God, we would begin to see you as a good father who is for our good and for our joy. I pray that we would realize, God, your way is better. Your way is just better. And that we would show the world your way is better by how we live. God, help us to live counter-cultural lives. Not so that we can be unique and for our own glory, but God, for your glory. For your glory. Father, we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.